You had a second insert in your bulletin this morning, and it's uh, dealing with some of the details of the prophecies uh, in Daniel chapter 11 and their fulfillment in history. I didn't go into all the detail of how uh, specifically these different uh, prophecies were fulfilled, but this is kind of an outline as to the people and, and events involved. I'm not going to go through this in detail in, in the sermon, but I wanted you to have it as a resource, something that you could take with you, and, and uh, you can read about uh, this history in, in a good study Bible or a good Bible atlas, um, or even, quite frankly, on a Wikipedia. <laughs> So we won't go over that in detail. Know that these are detailed prophecies, though, that were fulfilled. Let me read this word for us. It's a little bit of a longer chapter, but we'll get through it, Lord willing, in good time this morning. Daniel 11 is before us, the very word of the living God. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now... I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, not according, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them, and shall prevail." He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a great a multitude, greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army." And abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come up, come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, 
or even his best troops, for they, there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away from the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. 
He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, but the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to to destroy and to devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So ends the reading of the holy of this holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God. A long, detailed prophecy. Again, you can see how well it was fulfilled in any decent resource. But as we come before this word this morning, let's seek the Lord's favor and his help. Let's turn to him in prayer. Our God and our Father, as always, we come before you as we come before your word and seek your blessing. This is a more difficult word, and we ask that you would provide clarity as you accomplish all those things that you have promised when your word goes out, that it does not return to you void that it accomplishes what you purpose for it, that is, it is successful in the things for which you send it. Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. And make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Allow us to walk according to all that it teaches us. This we pray in the exalted name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever thought, what would I do if I knew the future? What would I do? How would I behave if I knew what was going to happen and when and what things would be like in the future? If you haven't thought about it yourself, it's a question we see in a whole lot of movies and books and sci-fi TV shows where time travel is involved, wormholes and all sorts of other goofy things. And it seems like in most of these stories, time after time, with very, very few exceptions, the characters do the right thing. They make the noble choice. We won't mess with the future. Who knows what consequences that might bring. Personally, I think it's closer to the truth that if we could, if you and I could, we'd mess with that future. (laughs) 
I mean, imagine if you could travel back in time. We were talking about this in our family this week. If you could travel back in time and make things better. If you could go back to the mid-1930s and had a chance, gun in your hand, to shoot Hitler in the head, would you do it? Why not? I mean, that's a natural kind of reaction for many of us. Partly because we're not so noble (laughs) as characters in TV shows. But we'd also think we're doing something good. Prevent war, prevent the slaughter of six million Jews. So what do we do with biblical prophecy? What do we do with words of God that tell us what the future is? God's telling us what's going to happen and how. Well, there's a difference. First, more often than not, God's prophecy is more general in its character and in its message. Not specific about times and people. We've got four beasts that represent four kingdoms. It's the kind of thing, you know, as you're driving, it's like driving with a rearview mirror. You see it after it's happened, or maybe, if you're particularly wise, when it's happening. But secondly, I think God's prophecy has a different purpose to begin with. God's prophecy and its fulfillment in history teaches us about God's sovereignty, His omniscience, His glory when compared to creation, that He is eternal, that we are bound by time. It teaches us that God is in control of all things and knows all things. And knowing this, should increase our faith and devotion to Him. Our God knows. Our God is in control. Occasionally, though, we're given prophecy that instructs us what we are to do. What we read from Luke 21 and the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Jesus is very clear. When you see armies around Jerusalem, flee! (laughs) That's pretty clear. Get out of town. Don't come into town. Go to the mountains. This morning we have a prophecy up through at least verse 35. That is very, very detailed. And as I've already said, fulfilled in incredible detail in the succession of kings fighting over and around the territory of Judea. But then there's, I believe, something more general that begins in verse 36 and following. God gave this detail so that his people would know that he was at work, that he was in control, despite them not being in control. Imagine you're part of this nation of Israel. You've been exiled for 70 years into Babylon. Now you've come back. You're in your land. You struggled to rebuild the city. You've struggled to rebuild the temple. You do not rule yourselves. Babylon was conquered, but not by us, by the Greeks. Alexander fell. His generals took over. They rule us. And these kings of the north and south are fighting, and we're caught in the middle. God gives this detail to his people so that they know all this is going on. I knew about it in advance. I decreed it in advance. Don't worry. I'm in control. Do not give up hope. I've given you promises. 
a Messiah coming, a son of David, restoration. In the midst of all this, they could look at Daniel 11, at least through the first 35 verses, and know God is in control. God has things in his hands. More about that later. The general prophecy, I think, is given to them and to us to give us a broader perspective on a ruler, perhaps rulers, to come who will rise up in rebellion against God and his people. And really what I want to do this morning is look at those two sections of Daniel 11 as I see them. The detailed part in the first 35 verses, the more general part from 36 to 45 at the end, and see what we can learn along the way. All right, the details. You think of North and South fighting against each other. We're all Americans. I think of the Civil War. North versus South, brother against brother. Four years of destruction and bloodshed. Estimates of over 600,000 killed. 600,000 killed. And thousands upon thousands wounded. What we have in Daniel 11, though, Something on the order of 150 years of fighting, mostly between the north and the south, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. It starts out, we've got uh, the angel speaking about Darius the Mede, and that's the conquering of uh, the Babylonians by the Persians, and four kings will arise. The fourth one being very wealthy. The fourth is Xerxes. You've seen the movie 300. You know what happens to him. He loses. But he stirs up Greece against him. Eventually Alexander comes to power and conquers the whole world. But right at the height of his power, he falls ill and dies. The kingdom, as Scripture says, does not go to his sons, his posterity. It goes instead to four generals. Two of those four and their heirs are what Daniel 11 focuses on. Seleucus and his descendants, the Seleucid dynasty, and Ptolemy, who took over the kingship of Egypt, the south, and the Ptolemaic dynasty. The Seleucids had the Middle East, kind of, if you can think of it that way. Syria, Iraq, that kind of eastern Turkey, that, that sort of area. They fight back and forth. Most of the kings of the north have either the name Seleucus or Antiochus. As you look them up in history, all the kings in the south were named Ptolemy, one after the other, until they had a few women take over, and they all were Cleopatra, including the famous one. <laughs> but eventually, the kings of the north take control of Judea. And in verses 5 through 35, we have this detailed description of the conflict between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And there are various intrigues, there are various battles, there are attempts to unite with each other through the marriage of a daughter of one king to another king. And these fail. In one case, the, the daughter dies and the rejected wife rises up and 
kills them all and takes her vengeance. In another case, the daughter is married off to the king of the south and she decides she likes her husband better than her father, so that doesn't work. They fight, they fight. They cannot come to peace with one another. And God's people in Judea are caught right in the middle because this is the border that they're fighting over. How to gain more territory, how to gain more influence. And eventually in verse 21, we get to the reign of someone we've talked about already, Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, God appearing. Antiochus takes, undertakes a great persecution of God's people, partly in revenge for being beaten by other people, partly just because he's mean. He's a wicked, evil man. And as we talked about, he sets up uh, an altar, an idol to Zeus in the temple of God, an abomination that causes desolation. He sacrifices pigs on the temple grounds, an incredible insult to the Jewish people. And by verse 32, we see a reaction among God's people. Some fall prey to his flattery. Some join his side. They are Hellenized, as the word is put. But others resist. Again, I'm not going to go into detail, but we see here what's now known as, as the Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmonean dynasty of priests, that eventually did rise up and take control of Judea and gain quite a bit of territory and ruled for a number of years. All this in 35 verses, God knowing in exquisite detail the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. So the Jews, as this is going on, can't be like us and think, well, I know the future. Should I take action to prevent it from happening? A wise Jew could read this and know there's someone coming who's going to set up an abomination in the temple. Should I kill him? No. This is God's plan. This is his decreed end for what will happen. It's him doing that that incites the people to finally rise up and take control of their own territory. The wise see these events unfold and are aware that God's plan is unfolding just like he said it would. And a time is getting closer because these prophecies are all tied into the ones we've seen before, beginning in Daniel 7, and even before that. Eventually, one like the Son of Man, Daniel 7, is going to come and conquer and his people will conquer with him. They're waiting for that. They know as more the, that as more of these details happen, we're getting closer to that day. So it's no surprise when we get to the Gospels that there were some Jews who were, they were ready. The time, the time is now. The time is ripe for Messiah to come. The fourth beast, Rome, has come. They didn't know exactly when it would happen because Daniel's prophecies aren't specific as to years. But sometime after the abomination of desolation, sometime during that fourth beast or kingdom, the Messiah is going to come. 
took about a hundred years from the fall of Antiochus, Antiochus for the Romans to conquer Judea, that Hasmonean dynasty. Then another 60 years after the Romans conquered for Messiah to come. So f- imagine 160 years or so of it's coming, <laughs> it's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. God's people had to be patient. God's people had to keep faith. And that's a lesson for us who now live in a time when we also anticipate the coming of Messiah, the great second coming that's promised. We also don't have a detailed prophecy as to when. We really don't have a a lot of great details at all. But like the Jews, we're anticipating a great and glorious and wonderful kingdom. And we hope it comes quickly. We hope it comes soon. And it's frustrating and it's discouraging to wait, especially as we see the events of the world unfold around us. The horrors that are going on in in places like Africa and the Middle East, Pakistan, China, and elsewhere things that are happening even here in our own country. But we are a people who are called to patiently endure. We talked about that a few Wednesdays ago, Revelation 2, verse 2. We are a people who patiently endure. So we also must keep the faith, must not lose heart, put our hope, put our trust in God. God has a plan and he is working out that plan and it will come to fruition. That leads us to the second part of the chapter, beginning at verse 36. And I want to say to begin, this passage from 36 to to the end is notoriously difficult to understand and there are various opinions on what it is about. Two prominent ones And anybody who says they know for sure is, well, probably arrogant. (laughs) The best we can do is, is, well, the best we can do is do the best we can. The two main options that I think are viable, the most viable, is that beginning at uh, verse 36, we have some general language that continues to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes the evil, wicked king. Many believe that. But I think more and more folks, more and more scholars are coming around to the idea that this is probably a more general prophecy about the king who will arise at the end of time, the Antichrist. And that seems to be gaining favor in most of the commentaries that are out there today. Now, what favors the former interpretation is that there's no break in the story. And then there another king. And then arose another king. It just says, and the king will do as he wills. And it goes on to talk about how he does what he wills. The narrative just continues. Certain things that describe this king make us think of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Exalting himself, speaking astonishing things against God, the things that he does against his people and against the God of gods. That, that kind of fits, it kind of works. But what favors the latter, and this is where, where I fall in my own understanding, 
at least right now, is that what's described when it's looked at in detail doesn't really fit Antiochus Epiphanes. He did not, as it says in verse 37, he did not magnify himself above all other gods. He still worshipped Zeus. He put up the altar to worship Zeus in the temple. He called himself a god, but that was really not that unusual among the Greeks and the Romans, as we know. He did not conquer Egypt and Libya and Cush, as it says in verses 42 and 43. In fact, he tried to, but was foiled in that attempt by the Romans. The, the reference to Kittim is probably a reference to uh, Rome and, and their mastery of the seas at this point in time. And he did not come to his end between the sea and the mountains in Israel, in the Holy Land. We know that he was away campaigning in the east when he died suddenly. So for what it's worth, I think the latter approach to these verses makes more sense. And that's what I'm going to follow as I go through this section of Scripture. Um, some people look at these verses and, and, and understand them to be about 70 A.D. The details really don't work there either. Um, and I think even those who would try to apply it there are a minority among uh, post-millennials, if you know the difference between post and on premillennial. So, if this is the end, which it seems to refer to in this passage, at the time of the end, verse 40, then this fits that this would be Antichrist, the one who finally rises up in opposition to God and to Christ and against God's people. And we don't know when this will be. It will be sometime in the future. Now that lack of transition in verse 36, to me, works kind of in favor of this idea that this is an indicator of the Antichrist. And I think what it tells us is the close similarity between Antiochus Epiphanes, who was such an evil, wicked man and did such abominable things, desolation, a close relationship, a close similarity between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. They're similar kinds of people. They're similar kinds of kings. They're similar kinds of rebels. They rise up in opposition to God. They rise up to destroy and make war against God's people. So another way to look at it is even 200 years before Christ, Antiochus is already a kind of a type of Antichrist. A shadow, if you will, of a, of a truer reality to come. An even greater opposition to God. All gods, it says. War with all those around him. The kings, and this is another kind of clue that this is not about Antiochus. He wars against the kings of the south, the north, the east, and the west. <laughs> this king to come. And so they show us the character of those rulers that oppose God and Jesus Christ throughout history. So we can say, I think with utter confidence, yeah, Nero is Antichrist. So is Titus. So is Domitian. 
So are others in history who have risen up against God and his people, whether it's a Hitler or Napoleon or even the papal ruler in Rome. Those who rise up and teach false doctrine, an Arius, a Pelagius, and others like them. 1 John 2.18 mentions antichrists, plural, that have already been seen in apostolic times. And if it's been seen in apostolic times, then I think it makes sense that it would be true throughout church history as well. And so verses 32 to 35 make sense applied to our time as well. Many antichrists arise who would deceive and flatter God's people cause them to stumble. And one is going to arise at the end who's like nothing we've seen before. Look around the world. Look around America. Look around the church. Are we not being deceived? Are we not chasing after all sorts of bizarre, weird, false doctrines? We, our ears seem to be so ticklish today. And our understanding of God's Word is so shallow We're so easily led astray. Is not the spirit of Antichrist rampant in our day? So what do we do? How do we respond? There's four things embedded in this passage that help us know how to respond. Four things. Believe, resist, teach, pray. I want to look at each one of those. Believe. Look at verse 32. This is about Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Who stands firm and takes action? People who know God. Understanding what to do when antichrists arise begins with knowing God, who he is, what he does, how he does it. And as we know from our study of Scripture, knowing God means knowing ourselves as well. Knowing the depth of our sin, our great need of salvation. Seeing his holiness in contrast to our sinfulness. And recognizing it as the right to judge us and to punish us for our sin and rebellion to hear, to answer the call to repent and believe. Knowing God means knowing Jesus, whom he has sent, knowing him as Savior and as Lord, putting our faith and hope and trust in him for salvation and for all things. See, antichrists come along and weaken our faith. They do it by physical harm, mental anguish, false doctrine. The first call to God's people is to know God, to believe in Him, and with that, to patiently endure and to hope and believe in faith. The second thing is to resist. What else does it say in verse 32? The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Verse 33, For some days they will will stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plumber, Plunder. Sometimes resistance is necessary. The enemy always tries to weaken resistance. Resistance is futile. The enemy always reacts violently to resistance. Execution by sword, by flame, 
imprisonment, enslavement, captivity, plunder, taking away possessions. Isn't that what despots have done all throughout history? They don't like you, they take away your stuff. They take away your freedom. And if necessary, they kill you. Example after example after example throughout all of history. But regardless of the consequences, the people of God stand firm and resist and take action. Note the mention of the wise. The wise among the people shall make many understand. We ought to look to the wise to know what to do. There's hot-blooded people, hot-headed people among us, always ready to, all right, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Take some of mine, I'm going to give it right back to you. The wise need to come along and say, no, this is the time to stand. This is the time to be patient. This is the time to rise up and take action. When do we do that? We need great wisdom. We know from the armor of God that we talked about last week, the purpose of the armor of God, and this is repeated in that passage in Ephesians 6, when you've done all, stand. Just stand. And sometimes just standing is resistance enough. Believe in God. Resist evil. And we do that partly by the third thing in this passage, to teach. I mentioned it already, verse 33. The wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise teach others. I love how our, doctor, our denominational book of church order talks about leadership in the church. It's not by power, it's not by might, it's not by fines or any sort of material ways that we lead the church. It's just by teaching ministerial. Any power or influence I or any other elder has is the power of our ability by the help of the Spirit to convince you that the Word says what it says. That's the only power I have. The power to convince. The power to speak. And it's not my power. It's the Spirit. That's all I have. That's all I got. But it's a great power. The wise help many understand, and in doing so, they believe. In doing so, they resist. The enemy hates it. Clear biblical teaching is what opposed the medieval pope and his medieval superstition. Clear teaching was what strengthened the church against Roman persecutors. It's what defeats heresy. It's what exposes evil dictators. Do we see antichrists arising in our day? Have they arisen in the past? Did not men of God stand up and rightly divide the word of God and speak truth and help many understand and resist those antichrists? And yet today... All that theology, all that doctrine, it divides. It's too deep, too much work. We ignore it, and we make ourselves more vulnerable to the Antichrist that arise. Instead, we should look to what it says here in Daniel. The wise need to make many understand. 
through right teaching. And then the fourth, we can't forget the context of this chapter. It's part of that trilogy, if you will, from 10, 11 through 12. One section that fits together. Why did Daniel receive this prophecy? Go back to chapter 10, verse 12. He prayed. He asked God. We're going to see it again in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. Michael comes because Daniel asked God. And God sent Michael to help. Are we at the end now? I don't know. Sometimes it's tempting to think we are. The gospel has gone out with incredible power in the last 150, 200 years. It's spread, really, throughout the whole earth. Have the full number of the elect been brought in? I don't know. Is there more victory for the church and for the gospel to come? Maybe. I don't know. I sure hope so. Depends on your point of view. All you post-mills, yes. There's more coming. The pre-mills, well, yeah, it kind of has to come because you've got to have that thousand years. Me as an Amel? I don't know. I don't. I hope so. But when the end comes, when that Antichrist, the bad one, <laughs> the really bad one comes, and every time in between when Antichrists arise, the fourth thing we can do is to pray. Because God hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. He watches over us and He takes care of us. We're told that throughout Scripture. Here's one thing we can take to the bank. Verse 45 says this about Antichrist. If I'm right that this is what this section is about. He shall come to His end with none to help Him. He shall come to his end. God wins. We know how the story ends. We joke about that sometimes. But it's not a joke. It's true. God wins. The church wins. God's people win with him. Go back to Daniel 7 and read that. The saints rule with Christ. So don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Definitely do not give in to the flattery and the wiles and the false teaching of the enemies of God and of His Christ. Believe. Resist. Teach. Pray. These are the weapons that we have in our fight with Antichrist. Antichrist says exalts himself above all kings and above all gods but he will be brought low with none to help him. He who exalts himself will be brought low, king or not. But he who humbles himself will be raised up. How do we know that? How can we have confidence? Because the king who had a right to exalt himself instead humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, but was raised up to life, seated right now at the right hand of God. And because that is true, it is also true, 
for every man and woman and child who humbles himself, humbles herself, repents of sin, dies to self, and lives to Christ, believing in God, standing firm in God, teaching others about God, and praying. The king who raises himself up will be brought low. The king who made himself low is coming back and will be lifted up. Every knee, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will bend to the knee and acknowledge him as king, as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is true. And that is going to happen. And I hope it happens soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it increases our awe and wonder of you, of who you are and what you have done. (laughs) These kings who think they are something were clay in your hands. And even the most despicable, despotic, evil and wicked of them when he arises, is nothing more than an instrument you use for your glory. We look forward to the day when Christ returns triumphantly. We look forward to the day when the kingdom is consummated and ushered in. And we do pray, Lord, that that day would come quickly. For we would see Christ, our Savior. And we would see you. And we look forward to the day when we are united for all of eternity with all the saints for your glory. We ask that this would come and come quickly, that you would bring the full number of your people in, that you would accomplish all your will and all your purposes for your glory, for the glory of Christ. And so we pray it in his name. Amen.